Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, east of Philadelphia and west of Atlantic City is the city of Vineland, situated in more or less the geographical center of South Jersey. Since the late 19th century, it has also been the center of a dispersed community of Jewish farmers. Following the Second World War, a few thousand survivors of the Holocaust decided not to settle in American cities, but like er earlier Jewish immigrants, become farmers in South Jersey. Seth Stern's grandparents were two of these refugees. In his new book, Speaking Yiddish to Chickens, he tells not only their own story, but that of their fellow immigrants and of the community in which they settled, one in which previous waves of Jewish immigrants had built a rich network of cultural and religious connection that Alexis Tocqueville would have recognized and admired. And like all new farmers in America, many failed. Many regarded it as the worst time of their lives, and others, even those who left the rural life and moved to city for jobs and other opportunities that were not available in South Jersey, came to regard it as their best years in America. Seth Stern is a legal journalist and editor at Bloomberg Industry Group. He previously reported for Bloomberg News, Congressional Quarterly, and the Christian Science Monitor. This is his second book. Seth Stern, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. So this began as what? Conversations with your grandmother? Just finding out who she was? Just random talks over coffee in Long Island? What was? How did this begin? Well, it, the, it actually, the little seed that began all this. The seed, I'll tell you what it was. I was listening to a book on tape in an actual Walkman, so you could date it all the <laughs> way back to 1998 when Walkmans were still a thing. And it was a book called Tuesdays with Maury, where a journalist, Mitch Album, uh, interviewed his college professor. And I listened to this book, and I thought, you know, I should do that with my with my grandmother. She was eight, turned 80 years old that year, and uh, in the interest of sort of preserving her story, I decided to start asking her questions, and that that was the the start of this. But it went beyond that. I mean, what did she start talking about? You wanted to find out about first of all her origins. You knew that she was a survivor of the Holocaust. Yeah, it started over lunch each day. I was home from uh, before my first set of law school finals. I was studying and uh, took a lunch break. Went over and we talked about each part of her life, her pre-war life, growing up in Poland her experiences during the war in part hiding in a forest underground, uh, uh, coming over to the United States as a refugee, and then ultimately settling as a poultry farmer in South Jersey with my grandfather and my mother, who was a, a infant at the time. So that was the part of the story that I sort of thought was uh, little known, and I thought a fascinating part of uh, Jewish American history, and that's where I, I focused my research in the years that followed. So you, you decided that the, the Holocaust thing, surviving in the forest, that was, other people had done that, but you were you were fascinated by the poultry farming aspect of it. I, I, that is a little surprising to me. I guess I don't want to uh, understate the drama of it. I mean, that it was a remarkable and, and horrible experience that she had to endure how she survived the war. But there have been a lot of Holocaust memoirs or stories that recount those wartime experiences. And I certainly touch on that in the book and the mm -hmm. repercussions and impact it had on the, on the survivors, including my grandparents. But yeah, I thought this is a story that people really don't know about, that uh, 
a few thousand uh, survivors wound up as farmers, and it was uh, touched on the larger story of Jewish American agriculture. So I thought that this was a good story to tell. And, and so you decided to take this, it's not just a family history, but we'll get to this at the end of the podcast. You burrowed into stuff that I, I, I'll be clear, my own, at least half of my family comes from Vineland um, and were set immigrants themselves and very different circumstances in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, so I knew these sources existed, um, but uh, you burrowed away in this remarkable collection of semi-untouched. One or two people have, have gone through them before, but you went through all of them because you wanted to tell this larger context in addition yeah, to- I sort of approached it as I am a journalist in my day job and a, a historian in the two books that I've written and, and approaching it both ways in terms of doing interviews, but also looking at archives and oral histories and, and other resources. So I sort of tried to approach it with, with uh, both roles in mind. Um, let's talk about your grandparents' story before they immigrated to America. Um, you've talked about your grandmother t- hiding in the forests. Um, where, when, how long, and what about your grandfather? My grandparents, they, they both grew up in a city called uh, Lublin, which is in southeastern Poland, which now is known uh, probably best as one of the largest uh, cities near the Ukrainian, close, relatively close to the Ukrainian border. Um, so they grew up there, sort of middle class, somewhat assimilated. Uh, and uh, the, the, during the occupation, the uh, German occupation, they lived first in the ghetto. And as that closed off, um, they, uh, my grandfather's family had a factory and the Russian uh, businessman who took it over uh, warned my uh, grandparents that it was going to be liquidated and everyone was going to be sent to their deaths. So they fled, first hid in a, in a farmhouse, uh, sort of not even a, the, in a barn, uh, in, a, in a farm. And then when that was no longer an option, into the forest, which was really one of the last uh, places where, where Jews on the run could go. And they built a, basically a burrow and, and had to live like uh, animals, burrowed underground for more than a year. Uh, and that's how they survived until the Russians, until the Soviet Union then, uh, liberated that part of Poland in 1944. So that was your both your grand both your grandparents were in that same borough. They were married by then. They got married. Uh, they were high school sweethearts, and they married right before the liquidation of uh, Lublin. And so they survived the war together as a married couple. Everyone in their immediate families were were killed in the in Belzec, which was one of the uh, uh, extermination camps. So the Soviets come in, and then what happens? They uh, returned to, to Lublin and as was the and then uh, Łódź, which was another city in Poland, and as was the case with many of the Jews who returned, they weren't exactly welcomed, uh, and they uh, felt it wasn't no longer safe. They wound up in the American occupation zone in Germany in a displaced persons camp. And, 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 and do you know how that happened? I mean that, that yeah, that... it was a mass wave uh, of of Jews exited Poland uh, into the American occupation zone and they had displaced persons camps. And my, it's not a camp like we think of it. They were in a schoolhouse in a, in a town called Bensheim. And I visited each of the places I'm mentioning just in the course of my research. It was a very picturesque little town in Germany. 
and uh, they were just waiting for the ability to come to the U.S. They were among the early one uh, refugees. There were limits on how many could come to the U.S., and they were able to come here by ship, a, a boat called the Marine Perch, a former U.S. Uh, military transport ship, and they came in February, January to February of 1947 is when they arrived in New York. Now, as a certain number of those people are going to Israel at the time, it's a, a lot harder, isn't well, it? I mean, but it, it but was... It was at the time, it was still a British-occupied Palestine. The, the British had very strict limits on how many uh, Jews they were allowing in, how many refugees. A lot of them were intercepted and wound up on Cyprus in what you would consider a camp surrounded by barbed wire. Yeah. And uh, even many Jewish uh, refugees, displaced persons, as they were called, who might have wanted to go to Palestine, they just, it wasn't a realistic option, particularly for my grandparents. They had a, a baby, a young child, winding up in a, 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 in custody in Cyprus wasn't an appealing prospect. And they had family, uh, more distant cousins in the United States who sponsored them, and that's how they wound up here. So your, your mother had been had been already born by this time. Yeah, my mother was born in Poland and she it was like a refugee. She was born in Poland, then she was they were briefly in Czechoslovakia, Germany, and four uh, boroughs in New York before they settled on a farm. So it was this constant they were constantly in motion uh, until they and I could talk about how they wound up on a farm and the appeal of it, but it was that life of of refugees for the early part of my uh, mother's first couple of years. Well, let's talk about the, they, they're on the SS Marine Perch. They arrive in New York, um, <laughs> very typical immigrant experience. You know, all of my, of course, many people listening to this, my family, many people listening to this, their families had the same experience, but of course they have a very different background, which is important to the story. Um, and they get into New York and then what? But they come at a time they were sponsored by, and this is a, this is not not unique to my family. They, uh, like many of the survivors, had lost their immediate families. They were dependent on the goodwill of more distant relatives, cousins, people who had come decades earlier. They may have met as children or never met before, um, and whatever help those distant family members could provide. There was a housing shortage in New York at the time after the war. It was a mass demobilization, so it was hard to get a job. And uh, so it just wasn't an easy time to come to New York. They were assisted by some Jewish philanthropies uh, that were helping the, the refugees. But uh, my, my grandfather struggled in terms of finding a job. Uh, he was, uh, they didn't come, they had no money. He didn't know English. So the options weren't very good. And when he found out about uh, the Jewish Agricultural Society, which was a philanthropy that had aided Jewish people interested in settling on farms for decades, that's this sure seemed like a good idea to him. So, what was there any was there any inclination to farming in your in your parents' background? None, none whatsoever, and that was typical of these refugees. Very few of them had any agricultural experience whatsoever. Uh, they tried to convince the Jewish Agricultural Society that they did, though that they didn't really care whether the they had farming experience. But most of them, yeah, they had no notion of what it would be to be on a farm. So I think they had a very um, idealized notion of an idyllic life in the country. They'd be able to be their own boss. It didn't matter that they didn't speak English. And that's why so many of them in their oral history interviews, that's what the title of the book actually comes from. They would joke that 
part of the appeal is the chickens didn't mind if you spoke Yiddish to them, and that, that's why the title speaking Yiddish to chickens. They didn't, most of them didn't know English, uh, and as I said, they didn't have any money. They lost everything in most cases. And a lot of them, their educations were interrupted, whether uh, they had cut it cut into high school or college. So they just didn't have very good prospects when they came here. What, what, I, what I love about this is, of course, um, historically, many American immigrants who become farmers actually weren't farmers back in the old world either. Um, we'll get to this in a bit, but some, some things have been written about uh, Jewish farmers have emphasized the fact that um, they had no previous farming experience. If you look at the 1630 colonists in Massachusetts Bay, a lot of them become farmers who have actually been skilled craftsmen. <laughs> they've been cabinet makers and shoemakers, and they've been, or they have no experience with farming, but they're in Massachusetts, so they have to become farmers. This is actually, it turns out, is not a new thing of, Euro of, of European immigrants who haven't farmed before and now suddenly deciding they will take up farming. I mean, it, what, it was somewhat unique in the context of Jewish American immigrants, where most of them, if they landed in cities, they wound up, for instance, the ones who came in the late 19th century, starting out in garment factories. Sure. The ones who went to rural America, and it wasn't that unusual. There were always some Jewish immigrants wherever, sort of every corner of rural America, they often started as peddlers, uh, selling whatever goods they could carry on their back or on a on a horse, and then they would open uh, dry goods stores in small town main streets throughout the country. So this that was the more typical path for Jewish immigrants. But there was always along the lines of like two or three percent of Jewish immigrants who did uh, go into farming. Yeah. The let's talk about violent. I have to uh, was there, as you know from emails and and from just what we were chatting. Uh, my family's uh, my father's side is deeply rooted in violent uh, since. You know, they, they kind of went through the same process your grandparents did, uh, working in sweatshops in um, New York and Philadelphia before deciding to hell with this and moving to the country to become farmers. Uh, so we should talk about violent and its origins and why there was a community of rural Jews, which I remember from as a small child in the 70s. As I said to you, uh, the idea of people walking on Saturdays to shul, to to synagogue or to temple to to shul, this was I took this for granted, and it's only years later, and certainly reading your book, I realized this is a very strange thing to take for granted. So, what are violence origins? And I think well, what I at the starting point I would say for the the Jewish agricultural presence in South Jersey dates sure. back to the 1880s when. Some idealistic, uh, mostly Russian Jews uh, decided that they, they wanted out of Russia and the limitations on what Jews could do and how they could earn a living and where they could live. And they settled on sort of idealistic colonies. They were going to have agricultural colonies. And they tried in Louisiana and Kansas and Utah, and most were failed. The, the, they picked the wrong spots in terms of topography and drought and mosquitoes and um, the place where they stuck, though they weren't terribly successful, but South Jersey, the colony, a couple of agricultural colonies um, that set up there did persist for several decades, starting in the 1880s, uh, places with names like Alliance. Uh, and uh, so you had these colonies there. But as time went on, the, Jew fam the Jewish families who had settled there, it was hard living. It wasn't really sustainable to have these colonies they looked nearby to this, this small city of Vineland, and that was a place where they could go and set up a, a shop. 
but Vineland itself had sort of is a unique community in of itself, founded about at the time of the civil, roughly the Civil War. A guy named Charles Landis was a, a lawyer and a land speculator, and he had this vision of a planned community. It's almost uh, he was a visionary in terms of what planned suburbia you might think of, where a, sort of a, a strict street grid, and uh, uh, he, he laid out how these houses days, had to be laid out. And these days, we would call him a new urbanist, actually. New I urbanist. Really, I, uh, I, and, actually, and, more, than a, more than Levittown, it was definitely more of a new urbanist kind of place. And his vision is that agriculture there would mingle with factories. And uh, initially, it appealed uh, to Ital- Italian immigrants came first, and they became truck farmers growing uh, berries and fruit and vegetables. And so that was primarily the first waves of immigrants in Vineland were those uh, Italian-Americans. And then subsequently, the the Jewish immigrants started sort of trickling in. First, as I said, the merchants, and uh, that was the first generation of Jews in in Vineland. And then came in the 30s, uh, the uh, refugees, the first Jews from Germany and Austria who were able to escape uh, Nazi-occupied territory before the U.S. entry in the war. And so they came to Vineland, uh, in part because uh, farmland there was cheaper than in some of the other places where Jewish uh, immigrants tended to settle on farms in the Berkshires and the Catskills in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, and uh, Central Jersey. And so uh, that's how you had this first wave of refugees. And then the post-war survivors sort of built upon what the earlier uh, generations of immigrants had established there. The um, result was this crazy, as I as I alluded to, that there's this country Jew phenomenon. So, could you describe? I mean, you get in, you get into lovely detail about this, but what's it like for Jews to in to be in the country? So, as I said, I mean, I I remember distinctly watching people walk to synagogue through the along country the countryside. I mean, and there are, you know, to this day, I mean, on, on, they're not used anymore, but there are country synagogues in the way that people would imagine a country church. Uh, in Norma and Alliance, in uh, in Rosenhain, in Carmel, in, in Woodbine, it's now a museum, but there are country synagogues. Uh, and they were to, to, to cater to this sort of wide, this wider spread Jewish community in the country. Well, what you were describing, those communities were those colonies, and they, they each had their own little uh, mm-hmm. synagogues. I think that I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, as I said, Jews lived throughout rural America, whether it was in Appalachia, the the Mississippi Delta, sort of gold rush California. But what was unique about Vineland is that most of those rural Jewish communities had begun to shrink by the 40s. Like the rest of rural America, uh, the residents there had started moving to big cities or the Jews had started moving from city to suburb. But because of these influx of refugees in Vineland, the Jewish community there continued to grow and flourish in the 40s and 50s, and that was very unique. And the survivors, when they arrived, there were already synagogues and kosher butcher shops and bakeries and delis and a community infrastructure. Friedman's Bakery. That's the only place to get your rye in the that, Zambon family. Uh, that's absolutely right. And uh, But they built upon that and sort of made it their own. So they injected a Yiddish culture, because a lot of them, that was what they were familiar with. And they invited Yiddish poets and uh, and, and comedians and, and singers would come down from New York, survivors like them who had fled Europe and now performed wherever, wherever fellow survivors had, had drifted. 
Um, and they had their own little synagogues, like you said, these little rural, what, what were called shtibles. And these were within walking distance of their farms because uh, religious uh, Jews won't drive on the Sabbath. So the, uh, they had to build, with, often with their own hands and with whatever money they could raise, they would build these little shuls that were in walking distance of their farms. So there were at least a half dozen of those mm -hmm. in, uh, scattered around the neighborhoods where the Jewish farmers were living. So why chickens? I mean, because, I mean, that's kind of the problem. In a way, this is a very late 20th century, 21st century agricultural problem. I, I didn't think that you, you might not have thought you're going to get into agricultural history, but here we are. I mean, this is like, this is, they were like the cutting edge of people doing one thing, you know, and, and they were doing eggs, at least the way that some people now do like 4,000 acres of soybeans. Well, as I mentioned that um, the original, the Italian-American truck farmers were vegetables and fruits. The land there was not suited to growing crops and to, to begin with in that part of South Jersey. And the, the, the sort of plots of land were necessarily suitable for uh, cattle or something that required lots of land. But chicken farming had taken root there in the, in the, by the 1900, in part because it was close to Philadelphia, relatively close to the New York market. So you could uh, raise some chickens and um, sell the eggs in, in, in a mass market that was pretty close by. Um, in terms of why for refugees, it made a lot of sense if you were trying to settle refugees on farms. Uh, it, the, the capital required was less. You could get going pretty quick. You didn't have to wait a season for the crops to grow, for instance, you sort of could, you had hens, as soon as the chicks were old enough, they started laying, they started laying eggs. Um, it was less labor intensive. A lot of the refugees, particularly the German and Austrian were older, uh, and they couldn't necessarily do the backbreaking labor of other kinds of agriculture. Not that chicken farming was easy. You had to carry heavy feed bags and it wasn't, I don't want to make it sound like this was easy no. work. It, yeah. it was just a little easier than other forms of agriculture. And because the plots, let's say if you needed 10 acres for 3,000 chickens, um, you could have those in places where Jewish immigrants wanted to live. The experience with the colony era and trying to settle Jewish farmers in the Dakotas, for instance, that it didn't work. They wanted to be closer to communities. They wanted that community infrastructure if they were observant and wanted kosher meat. So having them in a place like New Jersey, where you had uh, existing Jewish communities, is just a form of agriculture that made a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, you have to be able to form a minion, obviously, and uh, you have to be with if you're observant, you have to be able to walk to to shul. So that makes uh, there's certain constraints upon community life. Yeah, if you wanted to stay observant, that's correct. That it yeah. certainly helped to have uh, a larger community and to be close enough uh, to other, even if you were living on a farm, that you could walk to a common. Uh, place to pray. And so what was the, I forget the percentage you said of violent at this, at high, is it 14 or 50% Jewish? Well, I don't know the exact percentage. Um, that it was, I, I, no, I wouldn't say it was that high. It was probably in the, in the range of maybe 7%, 8%, huh. maybe 10%, um, which is still very high. I mean, yeah. for a rural, there were very few places in rural America, particularly in the 1950s, that were 10, 10% Jewish. So it was a Pretty remarkable percentage. As a kid, I remember. I mean, I remember these chicken palaces, 
Now you've you've been down there. You've seen the rel- the relics of them, and I realize now that I saw them like 15 years after they were basically abandoned. So they were still standing. Now they're much more ramshackle, but they're like they seem to be like three. In my imagination, they were like chicken skyscrapers. I think I called them as a kid. They're so big. They're like three stories tall or something like that. It the scale of agriculture changed, and we could we could talk about that if you'd like. Sure. Um, where when the survivor farmers arrived, you could make you could earn a living with 3,000 chickens. But as sort of the era of mass uh, agriculture and, and factory farming, it, it, it became uh, impossible to survive without 50,000 chickens, 100,000 chickens, and ultimately a million chickens. So these Jewish uh, refugees didn't have the kind of capital, most of them, to scale up. And in the course of the 50s, the price of eggs kept going down further and further. The rise of southern um, sort of factory farms that could operate much more efficiently and had lower labor costs, it became almost impossible for the small family farmer in South Jersey to compete. That was just the, so the sort of peak of what I write about was uh, 1948 to 1952, 1954. Mm-hmm. And then in the decade that followed, a lot of the farmers had a how to give it up and whether they stayed in that area or move farther afield, they just had to find another way to make a living. You've mentioned the Jewish Agricultural Society. So uh, for many people, that's a very oxymoronic term. So you should probably explain what that is and its importance because it does, many things seem to pivot on it in this, in this story. It was central to the story going back to the, or it's sort of uh, predecessors uh, to the late, uh, 19th century, uh, Baron Morris de Hirsch, he was a German-born Jewish uh, financier in Europe, and he had a vision of helping Jews get out of e- Europe in places where, such as in, in, in the Pale of Settlement, it was called, in, in Russia, where they were confined or limited in terms of what they could do and where they could live. And this was a way also, it was an idealistic notion to prove that Jews could live on the land, that they weren't just urbanites and... Um, and so there was, it was a mix of pragmatism and idealism, and he used his fortune to help fund Jewish agricultural settlements, not only in Europe, but South America and North America, and ultimately later in, in Israel, there was also uh, what became Israel, agricultural settlements. So it was uh, a far, the span of it was quite far. The, uh, they gave up on colonies. They focused really from the 1910s onward on mostly on family, individual family settlement. For the refugees, they provided a second mortgage to help sort of guarantee. It wasn't a, a cash gift, but it helped them uh, it helped them settle. And then as time went on, they were, it was more and more short-term loans. It became as farming, as the farms failed and they, delinquencies increased, the Jewish Agricultural Society could no longer really sustain itself. It relied on these subsidies from the Baron de Hirsch philanthropy, and ultimately by the late 60s, early 70s, it went out of business altogether, in part because there weren't many Jewish immigrants or any other uh, people, uh, Jewish people in the United States, really interested in farming. So your grandparents arrive in Vineland. Can you describe sort of how they get stuck into uh, raising chickens and, far- and, and collecting their eggs? They, so they settled there in 1947, in December of 47. They at first were sharing a farmhouse with another family, which was my grandmother's close childhood friend, also had survived the war, came on the same ship, 
and they were similarly situated in New York, struggling there, and thought this would be a good opportunity. So for the first few years, they were sharing this farm. It was a sort of collective economic enterprise, and they were sharing, living under one roof, raising their daughters essentially as twins. And then my uh, grandparents ultimately got their own farmhouse. It, it was, as I, as I said, it was very hard work. You had to get up early in the morning to, to make sure they're the chickens had water and it hadn't frozen under uh, overnight. You had to feed them. You couldn't take a day off uh, or go on vacation because the chickens needed to be uh, fed and every day and someone had to collect the eggs. Uh, it was dirty work uh, with the waste and they were nasty birds to one another, particularly cooped up in a coop. They tended to smother each other and peck each other to death. And so it was it was it was a hard life. As any form of agriculture, I don't want to make it sound uniquely difficult, but it was it was not easy. And because so few of them had that agricultural experience, I don't think a lot of them realized just how hard it might be. Not that they, they had survived incredibly <laughs> difficult yeah. experiences, whether it was concentration camps or living in, uh, in a forest or a lot. Some of them had fled to the Soviet Union and been in captivity in Siberia or or the uh, southern uh uh, republics uh, where they had had horrible experiences. So it's not like they had an endured tough situations, but this wasn't the idyllic country life they might have hoped for. Yeah, yeah. The um, one thing you you uh, query is whether, well, as we've said, there are waves of Jewish immigrants, even in Little Violent. There are the Russian Jews who are confused. In, a, in a, something that could only happen in America, they're living very close to a community of Cossacks named New Kuban, but we mm -hmm. won't get into that. And then there are German Jews, and then there are the German, those who have survived the Holocaust. That's three, but we could even probably subdivide those layers, at least the first two, into further layers of based upon when they came over, because immigrant history is always about when you come over. Um, did the people that came over prior to 1939... Were they dismissive? Did they ignore people like your grandparents? I mean, this is a, a big question in Holocaust studies. The, the dynamics were very complex, and I try to tease it out. It's certainly true that the survivors in their, uh, many of them, not all, in their subsequent recollections, whether oral histories or my interviews with some or their children, felt unwelcome. They felt at times uh, in, either ignored or insulted whether American Jews said things out of ignorance about what it meant to be a prisoner in a concentration camp or only, you know, bad people wind up prisoners or the assumptions Jewish American Jews would make because they had no conception of what the survivors that it had endured during the war. Um, the, the dynamics were, yeah, that the German Jews who came over prior to the U.S. entry in the 30s, they felt sort of looked down upon by the earlier Russian Jews were the establishment. It was sort of mm. the inverse of what happened in New York, where the German Jews got there first and looked yeah. down on the Russian Jews. So there is an element of whoever gets somewhere first looks down on whoever follows, or because they feel insecure about their station uh, and and the new uh, arrivals who will remind people of their with their funny accents and foreign ways. They feel insecure, so they sort of uh, take it out on the new arrivals. So it was a complex situation. There were ways in which I, I point to examples of um, American-born Jews who were very helpful to the survivors and made them feel welcome. 
But the dynamic among both the German refugees and then the survivors after the war was they mostly at first kept to themselves, created their own community institutions and uh, mutual aid society and social club. And that that was their primary uh, uh, social group was amongst themselves because that's mm. who they felt most comfortable with, if nothing else. And yet the... Um one of the most prominent citizens of in in Vineland is the editor of the Times Journal, the Vineland Times Journal, Ben Leuchter, um, who is sort of is he, for the Gentiles in Vineland. He is he is certainly number one, the number one Jewish person in the community. So what's and you go into great detail in his his attitudes, which I found yeah. fascinating because again, friend of the family, um, uh, my family growing up. Uh, often discussed. So could you talk about that? Yeah, he's an important part of the story. He's It's a family, the newspaper, the daily afternoon newspaper in Vineland, then known as the Times Journal, was owned by the Jewish family, the Leuchters. Uh, ben Leuchter took over. His father died uh, in a car accident, unfortunately, in the late 40s. And at the age of about 23, he had to take over the family newspaper as editor. And he went through his own education experience about survivors and with his wife, who uh, really was the one his daughters attributed to his wife, who's was closer to the ref, to the immigrant experience um, uh, in terms of that empathy. But they were, really were the bridge to the survivors at a personal level, welcoming many of them. And then his paper, it's pretty remarkable when you look at how it covered the survivors. It was a uh, empathetic and vivid and humane there's this notion that in the 50s that the survivors were ignored by Americans overall or Jewish Americans in particular. And that's been sort of set, uh, questioned by more recent scholarship. But certainly in Vineland, they were not ignored. They were not treated as outcasts. And a lot of the credit goes to Ben Leuchter and how he covered them in the Times Journal. The... So what we've talked a little bit about this, but could you get into more detail about what was religious life like for the observant Jews in, in Vineland? And what was community life like for them? Uh, you talk a great deal about the community. The White Sparrow Inn, which I can barely remember. Uh, it was, based, I think, derelict for my teenage years. Um, and it was not a, a happy place. But that, among other places, was important to the, the social life of, of your grandparents and, and others. Well, part of what I try to do is recreate this unique place in time. And um, so and so much of it is gone, whether it's the chicken coops or you mentioned the White Sparrow Inn where my grandparents won the Roomba, <laughs> Roomba contest of the Jewish Poultry Farmers Association in 1953. So I'm trying, I really try to recreate this unique place in time. The religious uh, observance, as uh, they had established synagogues that had been there for decades uh, and uh, uh Jewish community groups and Zionist groups. There was a Jewish radio show, The Voice of Israel, every Sunday morning. So there was a rich community life already, and they built upon it, the survivors. Um, religious observance, it varied. It varied, and that's part of the story I try to tell about survivors. They weren't, it wasn't a monolith uh, in terms of their, their religious observance, how well they coped with the trauma, how much success they had. Um, but some... Uh, it was a vital and imperative that they established that they find a minion, as they, you said, in a shul and were able to, to, to pray every uh, Shabbat and every Jewish holiday. And for others, they're having lost their families and lost everything. They also lost faith in, in God and, and they, that was just gone. 
So it, it really varied, but Jewish identity in that Yiddish culture was central to community life. Mm-hmm. I, well, I mean, I guess my sort of um, ignorance would say, oh, yeah, all the, any, anyone coming out of the Holocaust is an atheist. But of course, that's not the case at all, uh, as it, you describe. It's, it's amazing to read the accounts in the violent paper of survivors who went back having lost every member of their family, uh, one man dug up a Torah he had hidden in a forest so that he could take it as one of the only uh, family heirlooms and brought it to America. And it was so important to him to find a, lit- a little uh, religious community and host uh, a service at his farmhouse. So it was some people held tight to it, whether because it was just the one thing having lost their families and their hometowns, it was a connection to that life they lost Mm-hmm. Um, or because their religious uh, commitment remained un- undiminished. Mm-hmm. How did your grandparents, you, you described winning the Roomba competition, but uh, how did they fit into this community? How were you? What did your grandmother remember of it? Uh, uh, she's, and what did you find out about it, reading various sources? Sure. They lived there like uh, from 1947. My mother was not even two years old and they stayed there until 1964 when my mother graduated high school. So they were there quite a while farming that entire time. They were involved in all the community activities. um, And my grandmother had warm memories of life there. She it was for her a good life surrounded by people who had the same experiences. She didn't need to, she was one who didn't want to talk about the war either Mm -hmm. to her friends or her daughter. Uh, Talking to me was very difficult, but it was really the first time she was able to talk about it at all with anyone. Um, But just being surrounded, there was a comfort in it in, you didn't have to explain if you, not my grandparents, but if you survived uh, Auschwitz and had numbers tattooed on your arm, you didn't have to explain it to other survivors. If you were uh, the children, you didn't have to explain to other kids why you didn't have grandparents because hardly anyone did. They all had been murdered. So there was just a comfort. And for many of them, they found that soothing and and helpful as they tried to deal with the trauma they had experienced. So part of this discussion that you had with your grandmother also involved did you eventually then start talking to your mother about her experiences? And I did. I, and I'm the literature of, of children coping with parents who have experienced a great trauma like this. Um, there's a lot of you know half truths and you know psychology today evidence and you know stuff of this nature. What did you discover about the children of these survivors in Vineland? I mean, how what did they? How were they shaped by the often, the, I guess, almost always unspoken trauma that their parents had experienced? I, I write a, be, a bit about that. There's an extensive literature about the trauma of the survivors and how that connects to every uh, in, in, a form of trauma and PTSD as we would think of it now. Um, and, and there's a separate literature about whether they transmitted that trauma to their children and I, I'm not, a, you know, a psychiatrist. A, a well, you're a historian, and we're, so, I, we're we're finding are there traces? Yeah. Are there? Tra- are there are, I mean, we're looking for traces sure. of it in the record. No, I mean, I'm uh, saying all I'm saying is that there's sort of evidence all over the map. You could say they, um, the the children, uh, overcame that they had experienced this trauma, it affected them, or they overcame yeah. it. But the bottom line for me is, yeah, I mean, that you can't deny their parent. They grew up with parents who had experienced 
uh, horrible things. Uh, some of them, and I think this is when I speak of that they're not a monolith. Some were able to overcome it. Uh, some just were sort of lost in the past and they couldn't get beyond what they'd experienced or what they lost. So all I'm saying is I wouldn't want to try to uh, come down one way or the other because right. the experiences, it, it ranged so much. In terms of the children, I think that that was part of their story, the assimilation, which, but, but it, again, it's like other immigrants too, where they had a foot in the world of their parents and the uh, a foot in the sort of becoming American and their parents wanted them to become fully American and they wanted them to, uh, and they wanted them to retain a Jewish identity, but they wanted them not to stay in farming even if the farms had been successful, I don't think many of they had the aspirations of all other Jewish Americans at the, in that era that their kids would go to college and become professionals or entrepreneurs. Um, and so they weren't looking for their kids to be a second generation on, on the farm. Uh, if you look at the trajectory of the children, they were so many of them successful as their parents had hoped. Uh, so it's the story of, of the, you know, the second generation of many uh, Children, well, I, I mean, as I was saying to you before, I mean, my father's best friends who are Jews, uh, <laughs> he was the Italian in the Jewish community, and their their parents were all chicken farmers, and they were a chemical engineer, uh, an MD, an orthodontist. So success, you know, that's it's pretty so it's so typical. That's a question I've thought about. Were they any worse off the the children of the survivors for having grown up? in a place like Vineland rather than being in New York with the access to the culture in the, in the schools. And the truth is I don't, I didn't study it. I don't have no empirically, but I don't think they're, they were any worse off for it. If you look at the, uh, the outcomes and, and where they ended up and their experience was different. I mean, the rural life is something that my mother remembers fondly from as a, as a little girl and holding the fluffy little chicks in her hand, uh, up into high school and the experience of a of a rural um, a rural childhood, many of them remembered it very fondly. Not all, but many did. What's um, but it came to an end, and it came to an end because, um, uh, like most twentieth century farmers, uh, are pinned to a single commodity. Uh, there aren't many um, multi, as it were, multilingual farmers left. Um, and they were pinned to the egg prices, and egg prices eventually collapsed. I mean, it's by the way, I should say that even if you look at P.G. Woodhouse stories of Bertie Wooster and stuff like that from the 1920s, there's lots of guys going off to Long Island from England to raise chickens and raise eggs because it's an easy way to make money. So there was this this period from the teens to the 20s where everyone wanted uh, to do the 50s, where everyone meant to make lots of money raising eggs, and then all of a sudden it stopped. They entered the business at the absolute worst possible moment. In the 1950s, the scale of agriculture changed. Egg prices went down in part because of the uh, World War II era subsidies came to an end. At the same time, the government continued to subsidize the price of corn and the other, uh, what what went into the feed, what you had to feed the chickens. So those prices were still subsidized. But what you sold your chickens for wasn't. So it was a terrible squeeze between the, the two. And then the, with the rise of the southern farms and the scale of uh, production, they, they just couldn't compete. And uh, so, yeah, most abandoned going in, starting in the late 50s, accelerated as the 50s continued and into the 60s. Many couldn't even sell the farms because no one wanted to buy them. And the bankruptcy rates at one point, the Camden, the federal courthouse in Camden in the 50s, it was the highest 
bankrupt, uh, ag- farm bankruptcy rate of anywhere in the United States was in South Jersey because of this, this squeeze. So it was not a good business. It was uh, some made it work, some by scaling up. Some went into ancillary businesses, a very successful yeah. uh, kosher chicken processing plant, uh, breaking eggs and, and selling them in tins for bakeries in Philadelphia or beyond. So there were vaccinations. There were ways to make money around the edges of the poultry business, but not in raising chickens for eggs or meat. Yeah, the the people who succeeded did something else, which is like what the Amish have always done to make money as being farmers. They build furniture or you know or or breed dogs or something like that. Um, successful farmers are always diversifiers, and um, there you have it. But eventually, it all sort of has. It all disappeared. The the raising the chickens or all the uh, businesses that were sort of codependent. Yeah. If you had a feed business, if you had a hatchery to sell baby chicks, it all it all disappeared. Yeah. The um, the Vineman Poultry Labs. Arthur Goldhaft. I can barely. I can just when you read that, I, I had forgotten that existed, but I remember driving by it somewhere. Sure. I don't even know where it was, but that was a huge business, and it he was made. A very- yeah, a very successful business that was of the his family was of the generation that first generation of the colonists, and his was a typical sort of American success story. Goes on to uh, University of Pennsylvania, becomes a veterinarian, uh, first cares for ho- first cares for horses until he sees a Model T on the street, and then goes into chicken vaccinations. And it was a tremendously successful business. He was sort of a pillar of the. Jewish community and the international poultry uh, industry, really. Um, He unfortunately, he wrote a a memoir in the late 50s that was quite uh, disparaging of the of the survivors. Uh, In part, I detail in the book, probably his ghostwriter was more responsible for that than he was. But that was a source of tremendous outrage among the survivors for how he portrayed them as sort of every terrible stereotype you could think of uh, he applied to the survivors in his book. Now, some, like your grandparents left, and we'll get to that in just a second, but some stayed, perhaps the ones who had already diversified, and it was, uh, let's talk about the man who I took for granted as a kid, um, who ended up founding the, basically being the chief force between founding the United States Holocaust Museum. Uh, who uh, is an amazing character, but I just thought of him as, you know, the guy down the street. Miles Lerman you're referring to, who um, came over also on the same ship as my parents. Uh, They had met through uh, my uh, grandparents, a mutual friend who they shared a farm with. And my grandparents came down first and the Lermans heard about uh, Vineland from my grandparents' uh, friends who they shared a farm with. And that was sort of the story. It was a word of mouth migration. They came down and had their own farm. He was a community leader among the survivors and then went on to uh, be a very successful uh, businessman and entrepreneur in the oil business and real estate. And ultimately, he, as you said, was instrumental in helping create and fund the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, which he sort of considered the great achievement of his life. Um, and so, yeah, he's a central character in the book and his trajectory, that success, I contrast somewhat with my own grandparents' experience. They came over on the same boat, stepped off the boat into America the same day, but they had different outcomes. My grandfather never had that 
kind of luck or success or whatever you might say in in America that Miles Lerman did. But so could you talk about your 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 grandparents after they your mother graduated high school. That's very sweet. They decided they would stay there, I guess, until she did that. And then they decided they would move to the, the big city. They, they moved back to New York. They lived in Brooklyn. And my grandfather uh, sort of uh, tried a various uh, small businesses. None of them worked out very well. Um, and they arrived in New York, just as I said, they, they arrived in uh, poultry farming at the wrong moment. They arrived in New York in 1964, which was a summer of riots. And it was a tumultuous moment in, in New York. And they sort of stepped into New York at that, at that time. And they weren't uh, very successful going forward. Um, so that, that was, the, again, part of the range of experiences. Some were tremendously successful, like Miles Lerman. Other, I recount in the book, other farmers who went on to open small shops in uh, or a liquor store, a convenience store. One wound up uh, killed in a robbery in Washington, D.C., another the same fate in Los Angeles. So it's sort of uh, part of the story is that just because you had the luck of surviving the war, it was no guarantee of, of good fortune in the years that followed in America. It also doesn't mean you're a bad person. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, there's a very sweet thing where you talk about you know, writing about your grandfather. And I just, what comes to me through the book is what a good man he was. I mean, I it just like, it's proud. Like I'm proud that I could read about him. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm so glad that I conveyed that. Yeah. Because just because I, his material success wasn't, he was in my mind and certainly in my family, sort of a hero for, for helping uh, my grandmother and helping him survive during the war and just how he, lived his life as a farmer uh, and, and the, the rest of his life. So I, I try to portray that. And I, and I have uh, keepsakes, a memento. He worked in a nursing home later in his life. And I have that uh, right on my wall here in my house, just as a reminder of him and that, you know, the full measure of a man isn't the, the diploma. So I keep that next to my own diploma because uh, <laughs> it's something I want to teach my son as well one day. What sources did you use? Uh, this is uh, this is it's very it's a very rich social history. It's also a family history. It's also a, it's a history of a unique moment in American life. And um, obviously, you the you begin with an, an oral history, perhaps unintentioned, with your grandmother, and then it grows and grows and grows. So I'm really curious about how it grew and how you went various places and what was the moment you decided to keep going to the various places? It, it The research extended over more than 20 years, not uh, continuously. I was doing other things starting my career. I wrote an, another book, so I had to put this aside. But I've been doing research for about 20 years, started with my own family and then did sort of branch out to talk to other survivors and their children, find the oral histories do the archival research. The Center for Jewish History in New York, for instance, has the records of the Jewish Agricultural Society. Mm -hmm. I spent many, many weekends at the Violent Public Library, which for a time, if you wanted to read the Violent Times Journal on the microfilm there was the only way to do it. There was, it's mercifully for sake of access now on newspapers.com, so you could just do keyword searches. But for I spent weekends just going through it chronologically and there was a publication, the Jewish Agricultural Society had the Jewish Farmer, which was a monthly 
uh, magazine in Yiddish and English that provided farmers tips and uh, chronicled <laughs> Jewish farming communities, including violence. So I went through that. Uh, so as it, just because of the length of the time, the online access uh, to resources just improved and improved that I was able to do things at home that for years I had to go to, to elsewhere. But I, I couldn't have done this without, it's important to say, without the survivors and their children, the local Jewish community there, the Jewish Federation had the foresight to do an oral history with farmers mm -hmm. in the early 2000s while many of them were still there to have that set of resources and things like the Shoah Foundation, Steven Spielberg's interviews with survivors and just the many, many people who, who spoke with me and uh, went out of their way to, to host me when I was in South Jersey. So this was the product of a lot of research and a lot of uh, generous people in that area. Just to give a ballpark, how many interviews did you do with, with survivors I, and I, with children's survivors? Total, I did interviews with 80 plus people, but you know, with my grandmother, I don't know, I probably did 20, 30 interviews with her. So at the, sure. the total number of interviews, I couldn't even estimate, but there are at least 80 people. And then we're talking about dozens and dozens of more oral histories through the Shoah Foundation mm -hmm. and other source and other uh, sources. So there's many, many voices in the book. I tried it to balance telling my family story, but also telling the broader mm -hmm. community story so that it's not just a book about my specific family. And are there synagogue records? I mean, uh, all these little synagogues, did they have a place to put their records? No, there were, these were tiny, tiny little, uh, the, the more established synagogues have records, but not, I mean, the Holy Grail for me was, uh, was a newsletter of the Jewish Poultry Farmers Association and I, I couldn't get copies. And then I started a Facebook page for the book. And the the grandson of who, who wrote that newsletter got in touch. And it's now digitized and archived. And it's I think that's inevitable whenever you write a book. After you finish, you get access <laughs> to a source you wish you had. So I, I have a link to it on my Facebook page so people can access it. But I, you know, I wish I'd been able to uh, include that material. So you always miss something, no matter how long you oh, work on it. Isn't that the case? We'll put the, we'll put the link in the show notes so that people can have benefit to something that Seth did not when he was writing the book. Would it have changed your conclusions at all? Everyone, you read no, no, Ooh. no. It just would have you know more rich detail. That's, yeah, but it yeah. wouldn't have uh, altered the. the the story. I want to close with a quote from uh, Joe Amato, who's been on the podcast uh, three or four times. Uh, if you remember, uh, listeners, well, I have to go way back to episode 50. Good grief. Uh, uh, he wrote a book called Jacob's Well, which is about his family's history, but also essentially a call to for people to rethink the discipline of family history. And this is what he wrote. Family is the well of self. It makes childhoods, imprints memories, and offers models for a lifetime. Doing family history is a way to investigate its powers to take control of personal history. It provides a distinct type of self-knowledge, which is timely and even indispensable in this age of abstractions, ideological battles, and mass culture. And in many ways, you, Seth, you did what you never heard of Joe, you never read the book, but he, if you read it, you would see he does this tremendous work of building context for each generation of both sides of his family. And that's his, and in a way that what you've done to build a context to understand your grandparents. I'm just wondering how you resonate with that. Well, that's very eloquent. You said he's a poet and it, and it shows in, in his quote, I would say as I, I, just as I was trying to tell a broader story 
that would be uh, accessible and of interest to, to some people beyond my family. Uh, a part of my mission, the, the selfish element perhaps, was telling a story for my, uh, my son, um, who is seven years old, so wasn't born when I started this, but was uh, a baby as I was, began writing it. And I very much had him in mind and my ne niece and nephew. Uh, my son never met my grandmother, who died a, a year before he was born. But I very much hope, and if no one else was to have read this book, I was hoping he would be able to, to hear this story, the family story, and maybe bring it to the next generation. So that certainly resonates with me. My guest today has been Seth Stern. He's the author of Speaking Yiddish to Chickens. Seth, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 